0: I want to share with you a uh, uh, version of 1 Corinthians 13, the Christmas version of 1 Corinthians 13, author unknown. It goes like this. If I decorate my house perfectly with plaid bows, strands of twinkling lights and shiny balls, but do not show love to my family, I'm just another decorator. If I slave away in the kitchen baking dozens of Christmas cookies preparing gourmet meals and arranging a beautifully adorned table at mealtime, but do not show love to my family. I'm just another cook. If I work at a soup kitchen, carol in the nursing home, and give all that I have to charity, but do not show love to my family, it profits me nothing. If I trim the spruce with shimmering angels and crocheted snowflakes, attend a myriad of holiday parties, and sing in the choir's cantata, but do not focus on Christ, I have missed the point. Love stops the cooking to hug the child. Love sets aside the decorating to kiss the spouse. Love is kind, though harried and tired. Love doesn't envy another's home that has coordinated Christmas china and table linens. Love doesn't yell at the kids to get out of the way but is thankful that they are there to be in the way. Love doesn't give only to those who are able to give in return, but rejoices in giving to those who can't. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Video games will break. Pearl necklaces will be lost. Golf clubs will rust but giving the gift of love will endure. You know, Christmas is all about love, the love of God. Love came down at Christmas, as we just sang, and it was totally God's initiative. Someone who said that Jesus is God, spelling himself out in language that we can understand. We did nothing to deserve God's love. But he emptied himself to become one like us. The technical term of that is incarnation or infleshing, taking on bodily form. Listen again to this passage, short passage from Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. Let's break that down a little bit more. In verse 4, it says, In the fullness of time, the word there is kairos, not like time on a clock, which is chronos, but kairos, God's appointed time, a decisive moment the right time, never late. And in that kairos time, God sent his son, born of a woman. This was a tricky point for the early church, that Christ was actually born in human form. That's why Paul says born of a woman and not born of a virgin, because the virgin birth was not a problem for them. It was the virgin birth that was a problem for the ancient mind. They would prefer that Christ appear out of nowhere. That God would stoop so low as to take on human form was beyond the imagination of Paul's readers. Then he said, born under the law. Jesus was a Jew obligated to keep the law of Moses. This was a major issue at Galatia where some some were trying very hard to get the Christians to return to full observance of the Mosaic law teaching that salvation came through the law. But Jesus, who was under the law, came to set them and us free from slavery to the law in order to redeem those who were under the law, says verse 5. Redeem means to set free or to liberate. God came in Jesus to set the world free by grace and adopted us as children. Adoption is a gift from God's love. There's a story of, the, of a teacher, Debbie Moon, whose first graders were discussing a picture of a family, and one little boy in the picture had a different color hair than the other family members. And one child suggested that he was adopted. And a little girl said, I know all about adoption because I was adopted. And another child said, well, What does it mean to be adopted? It means, says the girl, that you grew in your mommy's heart instead of her tummy. The Father's heart loves us so that he is willing to adopt us as his own, even at the cost of his only begotten son's life. Remember, Jesus is God spelling himself out for us. And he sent the Spirit of Jesus into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, verse 6, Abba is an Aramaic word which means daddy or papa. It's a very personal form, never used in Judaism to address God directly. It indicates a close, personal, intimate relationship. Adoptions in Rome required a witness of the transaction, and the Holy Spirit performs this function for God's adoption of us as his children. As we read in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, Echoes a lot of the same themes as uh, our Galatians passage. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him, So that we may also be glorified with him. And then it says in verse 7 and heirs of the kingdom. We stand to inherit the kingdom of God, which means that all of God's blessings are ours. In the Old Testament, the land of Israel is often referred to as the Israelites' inheritance, all without God having to die to pass on the inheritance, of course. It reminds me of the scene in The Lion King where Mufasa shows Simba all of the pride land and tells him that one day all of this will be his. What does it mean for us, this adoption and heirs of the kingdom? It means that God has stepped in to history and provided for us. That God sent his son in order to redeem us and to receive us as his own children and heirs. So God is no longer an absent, removed deity with whom we cannot relate. God is now Daddy. J.W. Stevenson in his book, God in My Disbelief, tells how Dr. Christopher, an old minister, had gone south to London to seek for his son who had dishonored his home and left father and mother. There was no address to guide him, only after many days was the name of the street discovered, And when the old minister with his white hair stood at the end of the street, he knew it was beyond him to go from door to door its entire length. But a street musician came by just then, and Dr. Christopher stopped him. Did he know an old tune, one that had been a favorite in the home when the children were young? Would he walk with him along the street as he played? And he told him why. So they went slowly, the street musician and the old minister with his hat in his hand so that his face could be seen, taking this last slender chance to find the son who had no use for him, seeking him who had no understanding of the love in his father's heart. That's just like our God, who doesn't force us to return to him. Rather, he woos us. He sings to us, hoping that the tune will remind us of his love for us. It's a tune sung by the angels hovering over Bethlehem. It's sung by the shepherds as they hurry to see this thing that the Lord has made known to them. It's sung by the wise men who come to acknowledge the newborn king. And it's sung by the baby and Mary and Joseph as they wonder at what God was up to. And finally, it's sung from the cross as God takes the extraordinary step to take our punishment for us. And you can hear the song begun on Christmas morning, its refrain echoing against the hills outside Jerusalem as Jesus steps from the tomb on Easter morning. It's God's song. It's the song of creation and the song of redemption. And as children and heirs, it's our song.